All right, Ashley. We got Mimecast last week. We got Solar Winds before that. Just a just a ton of breaches. It's hard to consider. You and I have talked about security by design quite a bit on this podcast. We've talked with other leaders. Um, yeah, it's just top of mind all the time. And it's this constant push and pull between do you build it into the product, you end up slapping it on uh, at the last second. Right. And what we've seen, what we've heard from experts and what seems most logical is that security should be a part of the process and not an afterthought. Yeah. So today uh, we decided to call up Ted Harrington. He's got a new book out. It's called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. But I think what's most interesting is one, it's super readable, lots of hard concepts distilled into easy analogies involving blenders and others that we get into. But also um, his principles apply to like larger business practices too. Exactly, and it's all about um, the mindset and excellence and constantly improving. So certainly important for application security, but in the larger context of business, really good food for thought. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's get into it with Ted Harrington. Ted Harrington, welcome to the Zero Hour. We are thrilled to have you here. Super excited read the book, loved it. We have a lot of questions, so we should get started right away. <laughs> I've got answers. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, why don't we start with the really easy stuff? Can you tell us what ethical hacking is, why it matters, and then most importantly, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so I think the, the first place we should start to answer that question is first ask, what is a hacker? And the reason I think that's an important question to ask is because that term has become so incredibly abused, especially in the media, to really mean one thing, to mean bad people, you know, to mean an attacker. And yep. the attackers are hackers, but that's not actually the definition of a hacker. A hacker is someone who is a creative problem solver who looks at the way things work and tries to make them behave differently than they're supposed to. And inherently, that's neither good nor bad. So that's what a hacker is. And an attacker, as we just mentioned, is someone who is a hacker, but who has a malicious intent. They're trying to harm an organization to achieve some sort of nefarious outcome that serves their own, whatever their cause is. The other type of motivation, though, is, is a positive one, which is to make things better. And that's what an ethical hacker is. So that's, where the, that's why we attach the word ethical to hacker. And in, in our community, I think there's even some debate about, do we even need to apply that word? It's like, you don't say an ethical plumber, right? You're not like, we don't attach that word to other professions that don't have good or bad connotation. Um, but as ethical plumber, I kind of, like um, but nevertheless, I still think that it is good to distinguish, you know, ethical hacker because it, it puts right in the forefront the purpose, right? To approach things ethically, the, the uh, motivation is improvement. And I mean, our, my, my profession, our entire profession, my peers included, exists for companies who are trying to build better, more secure solutions. And they need to work with people who can apply that malicious mindset but without actually hurting them. And fundamentally, that's what ethical hacking is. And the reason that it matters is that, you know, when companies are building things, whether I, I wrote my book about uh, software, but, you know, if you're talking about networking systems or, or other types of systems as well, the premise fundamentally is the same, that you're building something and there are bad people out there who want to abuse it. And in order to deal with that, you need to really be able to think maliciously and think how that attacker thinks. And most people aren't wired that way. And I think that's kind of a good thing. Like most people see the good in the world. And then there's those of us mm -hmm. from the ethical hacking community who are like, well, what's the different ways we could tear that to pieces? I mean, that's the way we look at everything. And that's really the benefit of you know, why someone would wanna have ethical hacking as part of their security program because it applies that mindset that most organizations have really some difficulty applying. Yeah, I think that's a good point to raise and a good distinction to make here at the beginning. Our listeners will remember we talked to um, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and they had been working on just trying to create art 
for commercial use that wasn't guy in hoodie in a dark room, right? Because like the actual conception of hacker is distorting how we approach security, right? You think it's like these lone wolf problems. And then the other guy we talked to, Mike Convertino, former CISO of Twitter was talking about like to be a CISO, you kind of have to, and you touch on this in your book, like every day is a competition. You come in and your job is to defend and their job is to attack. And they, every day they're going to wake up and that's, that's their goal is to figure out how to get in, elevate privileges, just do what the system is not designed to do. And you kind of have to have that competition mindset. So um, you also have this great quote, which is uh, think bad thoughts and ask hard questions. I was hoping for our listeners, you might be able to, to elaborate a little bit on that ethos. Yeah, that idea actually comes directly from one of my security analysts. And I remember that moment really vividly when, when he first said that to me. I thought it was such a, a beautifully succinct way to describe ethical hacking. You know, we're out, this was pre-COVID and everything. We're out having um, some ramen. And uh, I mean, of course, I know what this guy does because he works in my company. But I always like asking questions that you think you know the answer to, because often you find that you don't know the answer once it comes across. And so I said, what do you do? <laughs> Tell me, like, what's your job? What do you perceive your job to be? <clears throat> and that was his answer. He said, well, my job is to think the bad thoughts and ask the hard questions. And that, I mean, I, I dropped my chopsticks, was like, proceed. Tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so he goes on to explain what he meant, which was really cool. So thinking bad thoughts is this idea of having that malicious mindset, right? Looking at something and saying, okay, it's supposed to do X. Can I make it do Y when the company doesn't want Y to happen? So that's the think the bad thoughts, right? Think like an attacker. And ask the hard questions. This goes to the idea of identifying and then undermining assumptions. So when anything is being built for any purpose, there are assumptions made about how the user of that system will or will not interact with the system. And those assumptions are really the, they're the basis of the security of that system. And it's going to sound like I'm, you know, oversimplifying or being trite or whatever, but you would be surprised how often assumptions are 180 degrees backwards of the, what someone would actually do. I mean, for example, uh, this exact quote comes up all the time. You know, we'll be talking to some company about their, um, their security posture or, or how the system works. And we'll say, well, what if an attacker did X? It doesn't matter what X is for the context of the story. We'll just say, what if an attacker did X? And they'll, and they'll say, oh no, no one would think to do X. And I'm like, we literally <laughs> just did and asked you about it. So if, if we did, someone else will. And that's a really common thought process that people have. Like, no, no, no one would want to do that. And that I'm not making that even though I'm sort of poking fun at it. I'm not meaning that as a value judgment of people who build things. I have tremendous respect for people who are building things. In fact, I perceive my job, the whole purpose of my job is to enable people to build things. I enable innovation. That's what I do. And... So I'm not meaning to in any way diminish people who are building things, but what I'm identifying is that because people often see the good in the world and they don't necessarily see the bad in the world, that's what allows attackers to be successful. And so when you combine these two things, thinking maliciously and then identifying assumptions that went into how the system worked, when those two things are combined, that's where you find these really catastrophic exploitable vulnerabilities. Word. That's really great. You. I mean, it's clear that security is important, but what I really love about your book, you say this up front, you say it over and over again, uh, security is not just the right thing to do, it's also a competitive advantage for your business. Um, we often run into the roadblock discussion from business leaders of being unable to prioritize security or call out costs, but can you explain why and how security is a competitive advantage? Yeah, the simple answer to that is that security is a competitive advantage for this reason. It's that uh, enterprises want, and not just, I'm not excluding just two very large companies, but companies want the systems that they use. They want the vendors that they choose to do business with. They want them to be secure. 
And so when a company can prove to their customers that in fact they are secure or as secure as can be reasonably proven, that directly speaks to what the customer wants. And that's an enormous competitive advantage because first, it, it, does, it does a few things. First, it's speaking to what your customer is asking for. Even if they haven't explicitly asked for it, they want it, I assure you. They want your system to be secure. They want your, uh, they just, they, whoever they're in business, they wanna make sure that security is, uh, is done well. So that's the first thing, that's what they want. The second thing is that most people, most companies don't know how to do it. And even if they do it, right they don't know how to communicate it so if you think about those two mm. factors combined on one hand this is something the buyer wants on the other hand almost no one provides it that's an enormous enormous opportunity for anybody who can capitalize on it yeah and i think you point out that accurately that security is often viewed as a tax on the business i like that you simplify it down to if you think about it that way, then when you think about cutting costs, air quotes, um, what you're really doing is substantively cutting the effort down at securing your enterprise. And I, I would like to think that in light of 2020, which is like the epic year of ransomware, and then two years before that, I mean, the whole two years before that, just breach after breach after breach. Do you think that that mindset is finally changing, that it's no longer seen as a as a tax burden, but rather, you know, an added value, even if it's just viewed as a necessary component of doing business. Have you seen that from the, from the front lines of your company? Is that mindset changing? I see it changing in on the edges. And by that, what I mean to say is I don't see the masses having this mm -hmm. mindset yet, uh, but I do see a few things happening. One thing that I see happening is that uh, I'm not the only one in the security community who's advocating for this point, right? Uh, so often companies are saying things like, well, security is the cost of doing business. Security is like insurance. Security is like, a you know, they see it as these things where they're like, can we make that thing that isn't a competitive advantage? Can we reduce the cost over there? That's the way that most people, most companies think about security. But the companies who are having this more progressive mindset who are realizing, hey, wait a minute, this is a competitive advantage. This is something that um, also resonates with and it reflects our core values. Like when a company says trust is important for us or we define mm -hmm. ourselves by integrity or we put the customer first, if you're not securing your solution and you're putting your customers at risk, you are not actually living those values. But the companies who, who recognize that connection, they are very powerfully uh, capitalizing on the investment that security is. But unfortunately, they are in the minority. Now I'm in the sort of privileged, maybe it's not that I'm in the privileged position. It's that the corner of the world that I'm in is that I pretty much only work with those companies who are right. uh, driving right. forward. So to me, I'm like, I look at my customer base. It's like, oh, well, 90% of these people all share that belief. But you know, they're like the majority of the world, of the world that is thinking about it right. And so that's why I wrote this book. That's why I'm appearing on you know, really influential podcasts like yours and really just trying to get the word out there one, you know, one message at a time to say, hey, we've got to think about this differently because it really is this amazing opportunity in front of us. Yeah, preach. But um, also, I think there's so many. It's interesting how many dimensions there are to this. So let's like look at security. You can look at it as a competitive business advantage. You can look at it as a as a cost center versus the cost of doing business. And then there's this idea that's security built in rather than bolted on. We've said security by design in the book. You refer to it as built in. And I, I love that you use a blender analogy uh, to bring that to life. For the benefit of our listeners, it does appear that you are, in fact, drinking said smoothie from the book. But I would, I would like to give you a, a moment to discuss that also as an avid smoothie drinker myself, because I think it... It's so simple and you know, it's devastatingly simple in terms of how you view kind of the proactive versus the reactive security posture. What if I told you that I wrote the book just so that I could share my proprietary smoothie recipe? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I could see that. That's, <laughs> that's definitely That's another viable. Easter egg in the book for you. Uh, yeah, the blender thing. That was, uh, it's, that's a fun metaphor 
because I was literally as I'm one morning working on the book and I'm having my smoothie, I look at this just nasty blender and I'm like, hmm. And this light bulb moment went off where I'm like, that is building security in right there. And so essentially the metaphor is this, that you know, each, each morning, of course, I make this smoothie. And when I pour the smoothie out, as I have done in my delicious, although it does, smoothies don't look good. I mean, this green puke looking thing that I'm <laughs> right. sipping as we talk right now. Uh, once I've poured it out, I have two ways I can clean the blender. I can do it now or I can do it later. If I do it later, that's what probably most people would do with the blender. That's what I used to do for a long time. And this is sort of what it's like to bolt security on later. So essentially what I do is I just leave it sitting in the sink. And when I come back later to clean it, everything's hardened. All the nutritious ingredients in the smoothie. And it's a nightmare. I have to disassemble. I have to soak it. There's a lot of scrubbing involved. And that's just kind of annoying. It's easier in the moment. I don't have to do anything with it once I pour the smoothie, but it's a pain later. So that's one way I could do it. And that's what it's like to bolt security on. The other way I could do it is I could deal with the smoothie right now. So I pour the smoothie out. I put a, just a single drop of soap in it, put a little bit of water, put it back in and run for like 10 seconds. And the thing literally cleans itself. No scrubbing, no disassembly. It's not a chore I have to do later. It takes me like 15 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever. It's like no time to do this thing. It's way easier overall, but it just requires me to pause in the moment to say, I'm going to do this thing now so that I can save myself headache and heartache later. That's what it's like to do like what you said, security by design, which is, yeah, you're right. It's exactly synonymous with what I call building security in. And that is the case that I'm really trying to advocate for because when companies can think about security during the development process, they save themselves material expense later, but the big savings is they really save themselves effort because having to fix, let's say it's a design level issue that you find out about when you're in deployment. I mean, that's an enormous amount of effort to fix that as opposed to, well, it's still on the whiteboard saying, let's make this squiggly line go to that circle over there instead of to this circle. And that is a far more secure way to do this. Super easy to do just requires you in the moment to pause and say, what's the eventual outcome that we're looking for? Yeah, I think that's good to point out. Also, I would encourage, obviously, everyone to read the book because I think you do a really good job of actually showing these bar graphs of like time and effort through different stages of deployment and maintenance, right? And so the later, you just end up with like huge amounts of effort after you've deployed in the bug fixes and like re-engineering and more releases just to patch over the holes in the system. And, and that, I think if we were trying to think about business cost, like that is a just burning hours trying to duct tape things back together. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's hard to see those costs too. Um, one of the points I make in the book, I actually point out some data to these numbers is you're already employing your developers and whoever is going to suffer this additional work later. You're already employing them. That already shows up on your PL. What doesn't show up on the PL is that their productivity plummets because they're having to go back mm -hmm. to do work that they already did. If they just did the work up front the better way, the, and not to say that you know people who build things are in any way not intelligent, but they're not necessarily thinking about security right up front. If they're thinking about security right up front when they build it, they don't have to go back and redo that thing later. And that difference in productivity isn't something that you can very easily, you can obviously extract it from your PL, but it's not like here's a line item that goes to my security consultant. Like that line right. item, you can easily look at PL and be like, okay, there's a there's a cost. It's harder to see productivity in a PL. And I and I wonder if this is and I don't expect you to have an answer for this, this is me thinking out loud, but is this a product of you know, hyper growth, VC, you know, just rush to get product out, rush to acquire users. You know, there's a lot of profit incentive, plus maybe a skill shortage in terms of the thinking of, of getting security. I mean, there, it just feels like there's a, it's not just a mindset. There might be larger economic forces that have just forced that, but maybe that's beginning to change now since there's such a huge cost to breaches. Oh yeah. It's, it's absolutely what you said. The, the, economic factors of getting to market, doing it as fast as possible. I mean, the, the mindset when building anything, right, is, um, well, and, and I've heard this exact quote so many times, 
Well, there's no point securing the thing if the market isn't going to accept it. So let's get to market. Let's see what the market has to say. And then let's secure it if the market Oof. says we like this. And there's practical truth behind <clears throat> I don't dispute that. But the point that I'm making is that it actually doesn't slow you down. Do right. security right, right from the beginning. And that's the, that's the message that hasn't permeated yet. So I'm not saying slow down your development process mm -hmm. and get rid of this idea that you are running a business and that profit matters and that the runway of your investment capital is an important thing to keep in mind. I'm not rejecting those. I'm rejecting the idea that says those priorities are in conflict with security. They're not. And the example that I lay out in the book, is, which I think is a really compelling one, is when you think about threat modeling. A lot of companies skip their threat model, uh, which I, we can talk about if, if you want to go into depth on that. But the threat models is essentially you know, part of is the key to the security plan. And many companies skip this. Many companies don't even know what it is. <laughs> but even the ones who do, they skip it. Yes. But to actually talk about your threat model, when you're talking about requirements for the system, like this is what the business user needs. And so in order to do that, we need to have these types of capabilities. Once you know what those things are, that helps you understand, well, this system is going to have to protect this type of thing. And if we have this type of thing, that means this type of attacker is going to be interested in it. You just build your threat model. It's like it took an extra 30 minutes. So this whole idea of we're going to do security later when I'm telling you that you already have the right people in the right room, having the right conversations, you just need to ask a few different questions. I, I, I totally dispute the fact that security needs to come later. And this is why we love your book, because you take some a seemingly scary, complex topic and simplify it for everybody to understand. And, you know, I know the book is about approaching application security, um, but how can these lessons be applied to overall business security strategies? Yeah, the book, the principles actually do apply across every security domain, um, but I had to make a strategic decision in writing the book, which was, if mm -hmm. I try to write it too broad, right? So if I wrote the book that was like security strategies, it would just, it would be too, trying to be everything to everybody is just too vanilla and it be, it winds up being nothing to nobody. And so I said, all right, well, who's my primary audience? I see people building software systems, struggling every day with the same 10 problems. I know how to solve those problems. And the conventional approaches to solving those problems are almost universally wrong. I was like, let's start with that problem. I'll start, I will write a book for that audience. Um, but the truth is these principles about how to think about even your mindset around security, how you work with outside organizations, how to think about it in terms of your budget, how to apply it as um, in terms of the business context, all of these principles apply more broadly. Yeah, cool. And I, I wanna change tack here a little bit. We're gonna go after, um attack surfaces and assets, like any good hacker. Um, so you ask a series of important questions, you sort of pose, like these are the questions you need to ask when it comes to um, thinking about risks. And one of the questions stood out to me, which is how does our system interact with other systems, right? So you're talking about the point of view of somebody developing an application, but I also think about like larger systems. How does our network system interface with other systems? So we have solar winds right in our face, right? Like there's no clearer example of that system on system connection and vulnerability. So in your mind, uh, what are the lessons that we can take forward, right? It seems like we're very much in a conversation now about supply chain vulnerabilities. And I think now people are beginning to think about the systems that are touching their own and, and stuff that they took for granted earlier. Yeah, I wrote this book. Well, let me take one step back. So if you think about security, there's two sides to the coin. And I wrote this book to talk about one side of the coin. Uh, but the other side of the coin is what you just brought up. So one side of the, the security coin is uh, the organizations who are building something and trying to convince someone else that, hey, you can trust this. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the organizations who want to acquire uh, either through M&A or in terms of a subscription or a license of some solution. And they're wondering, is this in fact going to be safe to use? And so the, a lot of the ideas in the book, they, they actually serve both sides of the coin, but I wrote the book from one, from one perspective, just for sake of simplicity. 
but you're so 100% spot on that the supply chain, which is essentially the idea of how these different uh, solutions interact with each other, that's, that's an incredibly important part of any organization's uh, overall threat landscape. And the way that companies need to be thinking about their solutions, whether it's products that you're licensing or subscribing to, or companies that are providing services to you that you're uh, providing access to, is you need to think about how all of those organizations inherently become insiders by the mm -hmm. very nature of doing business with them. And an insider, a lot of people think that an insider is an employee, and that's true, but Insider status isn't about employment status. It's about access and trust. And employees have elevated access and elevated trust, but so too do vendors and members of boards. And some, in some cases, even like your family has elevated trust and access to a company. And so that's the way that organizations need to be thinking about these solutions that they're using is saying, look, I, to a certain extent, I do need to trust the companies that I do business with, but I also need to absolutely have that skeptical viewpoint of, how is this potentially going to come blow back on me and thinking about uh, how that organization impacts your threat landscape. Yeah, and also the things you can't control, right? You, you may in fact trust the third party vendor, but if, you know, they get hacked, it's not your fault, but that hacker now has, you know, a way in through that, through that privileged access. And I, I think I asked that question because Ashley and I were talking, um, when we were reflecting on the book and she brought that up as, you know, in the face of the pandemic, we've just seen skyrocketing adoption of cloud SaaS platforms just to make things work, just to get employees to talk to one another while they're at home. Um, and so it just seems like the supply chain argument is getting much more important, much more business critical um, because it's actually touching on just the day-to-day -day operations of your business. Like the beginning of the year when Slack went down, I was like, well, how are we talking today, yeah. guys? We'll send everything through email. So, I think a lot of people were excited about Slack going down on the first Monday of the year. Everyone's like, nice. I know, it was like, really? <laughs> yes, 2021 is here. <laughs> first day back to work. Um, you also have a really fascinating example in the book of when you led a working group in the travel industry. I found this uh, particularly illuminating. This was under the, the part of the book where you're talking about what are the assets that need protecting against that series of questions. And when you were leading the group and you asked the different business units, they all cited different needs as their priority, right? Like some people was like protect credit card information, protect guest information, protect, you know. So I guess what is your advice to business leaders on how to reconcile those different perceptions of, of what's the riskiest asset? And then a uh, follow-up question is, would your advice be different if you were talking to the CEO versus a CISO? The advice is simple. You got to talk about it. I mean, obviously I'll elaborate on that. <laughs> I'm not trying to discuss <laughs> your question, but the, the, the interesting takeaway from that exercise where I had led this working group in the hospitality industry, travel industry, where they wanted to understand the implications of using your phone as the key to your hotel room. And so I led this group with all of these uh, CISO or equivalents of different uh, hotel brands or the vendors who were selling solutions to those brands. And the first thing I did was started asking, I mean, I just genuinely wanted to know what they said, you know, what, what do you want to protect? We can't go any further until we know what you want to protect. And that was when each individual had all these different answers. You know, the first person I talked to said, oh, we care, we care about guest safety and we care about privacy of corporate information. I'm like, all right, cool. Then I go to the next person. They said, oh, we care about um, the physical assets that belong to the hotel, like the AV equipment that's in a room that uses the same locking system as a guest room. I'm like, well, wait, what about guest safety? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's an important one too. And <laughs> that repeated itself second. in every single conversation. And it was only because I was the I was just asking. I wasn't even telling them what they should care about. I was just asking these questions. That was what helped them realize. Okay, here's what we here's the full list that we care about, and that's what needs to happen in an organization. It's often assumed that the whole company understands what the company cares about, and that assumption mm -hmm. is going to be. I don't know if you should ever generalize, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that assumption will be wrong 100% of the time. If you don't talk to your people about what's important. 
people will not all be on the same page. I mean, there's this, I don't know, this, this didn't make it into the book, but uh, there's this commercial that Geico has where the, this guy's like cleaning out his garage or whatever. And he finds this lamp and he rubs the lamp and a genie comes out. Genie says, you get one wish. What do you want? And the guy says, oh yes, I want a million bucks. And the genie says, wish granted and gives him a million deer. Guy <laughs> did not mean he wanted a million male deer. He meant he wanted a million US dollars. And that's a stupid metaphor. Like, yes, that is a ridiculous yeah. example. <laughs> But it, it actually pretty powerfully makes the point that unless we really talk about what it is that we want, we're trying to achieve and really be clear, the same words are going to be understood differently by different people, even in the same organization. And that's the point that I'm trying to hammer home to people is that threat modeling is an exercise that helps you do that, helps you identify what you want to protect and against whom. And then that is what you use to inform your decisions about what to invest and where in your security mission. And so that was, that was for me, a really eye-opening experience from this work, leading this working group to realize, hey, I know that, I mean, that's always been my position in theory, but to see it play out in front of my eyes, that in that stark of a manner where person a and person b don't say the same thing but then when i'm like person a said this they say yeah yeah, yeah that's important too that's going to happen in every company yeah i think that really underscores how security has really i mean moved from an it problem into like an everyone problem because basically the question is what line of business has data everyone would raise their hand like what what is the data you need to protect and they're all going to have a different answer so that's a that's a really good point and i mean security is everyone's job right yeah Yeah. it's everyone's job and i I love that you're you're highlighting you have to ask questions and think outside the box to really get down to what is that simple message so you know in the book you talk about achieving security excellence and you give this example of two medical device companies can you talk a little bit about that example? Yeah, so security excellence is this idea uh, that really what defines security is the pursuit of excellence, of getting better every day. I didn't want to define excellence as excellence. Uh, <laughs> security excellence is this idea that you're constantly improving, you're better today than you were yesterday, and you'll be better tomorrow than you are today. And that's universally, I mean, I think pretty much anybody in security will agree that that is what security is about. You're never done, but you're always striving to get better. And um, that's such a powerful and important idea that I toyed with that actually being the title of the book for for a while. But the challenge is that uh, I need the person to pick up and read the book so I can convince them right. of why security right. excellence is what they need. So I was like, all right, let's not alienate people who don't believe this right out, right out the gate. But this is, in fact, the core to success in security. It's the pursuit of excellence. And I shared a couple stories in the book. These are real world stories of our customers that really starkly show what happens when you do or do not actually believe in getting better as your sort of security ethos. And the first came from a a medical device manufacturer that we had worked with at one point, who, when we finished the assessments, our our core business is we perform security assessments and what a lot of people might call penetration testing. So when we were done with our service, we met with this client to share with them the results. And the reason that we want to do something like that is, uh, as I said, the point is, about getting better. And we wanted to make sure the client understood the problems. So we have this meeting to say, okay, here's what was in the report. I mean, it's already in the report, but we want to make sure you read it and understand it. And we want to clarify anything that might not be clear. And the CEO, as we're going through this, he actually interrupts the sort of the presentation. And he said, well, it's not as bad as you suggest. Now, this particular device injects morphine into your spine. It can literally so, right? So kind of important. Yeah, kind of important. And we yeah. just showed him how to do that, and he's like, eh, "It's not that big of a deal." And we're like, "No, no, no! You go now. Tell us why this is not that big of a deal." And uh, I, I said, I didn't mean it to sound as condescending as I just <laughs> am retelling the story. It wasn't I was actually genuinely like, "Wait, hold on. What are we missing? Tell us why this isn't that big of a deal." And he says, "He says, let me let me put it this way. Like what you're talking about, even though it could happen." 
I'm not really that worried about it. And so he goes on to share this as an example. And he says, he says, look, I drive this BMW. I love this car. I would never want to see it get scratched. He says, theoretically, someone could haul a piano up onto the roof of our building, throw the piano off the building onto my car and completely destroy my car. He says, theoretically, that could happen, but I'm just not that worried about it. Now, I am okay. quite literally in the business of seeking the unexpected. But this unexpected, this like my jaw was on the floor. I, di I didn't even necessarily know how we would react to something like that. I mean, we literally just showed him exactly what he had hired us to do, which was understand how an attacker might hurt or potentially even kill a patient via his device. And he rejected it. And his attempt was to actually you know, diminish it or downplay it or try to talk his way out of it. And unfortunately, we, that we were sort of at an impasse. We never could really talk him around trying to fix it. And unfortunately, the story has a sad ending, which was that when he went to go get approval for use of the device on patients, uh, the FDA who approves devices, they of course asked about his security assessment report. And when they saw the report that we had supplied and they asked him, well, what are you going to do about all these issues in here? And he tried to do the same thing to say, oh, they're, but those aren't that big of a deal. And here's why uh, the FDA really did not like that. And ultimately um, denied approval of this device for use on patients. And I'm certainly not meaning to celebrate that it's, it was, it was not a good feeling for us too. I mean, for them, it definitely mm -hmm. sucked. Like they, because they couldn't sell their product, they wound up almost immediately after they had to go out of business. But it, it was unpleasant for us too. You know, our whole thing is to help our customers get better. And I felt a certain sense of failure that we couldn't help this company get better. But it was because their mindset was set the way it was. They didn't want to get better. So they didn't try to get better. So they just simply didn't get better. And that's as simple as it is. And if you look at that in contrast to another customer of ours who this story is a lot less dramatic, but is the outcome certainly that you want. Uh, this company came to us early in the process. They didn't have a, very much money or even people or time or anything, but they knew that security was an important part of what they were trying to do. They knew it was going to matter to their customers. So they were all in. They said, well, you know, we want this to be really a differentiator for us. Can you help us do that? And so that's what we did. And over the course of several years, they kept getting better and better and better. And they were really, really good at extracting the lessons from any of the reports that we were supplying them and applying those lessons to improve their development practices, to spend money better, to spend time better. And a few years later, they wound up getting acquired for uh, over $100 million. I forget what the exact number was, but it was massive. And now, of course, I'd be a fool if I was to sit here and suggest to you that uh, they were acquired just because they were secure. I mean, they were acquired because they were a great business, and great fundamentals, and great leadership team, and you know, perfect fit with their acquirer. But they wouldn't have been in the room if they couldn't right. prove their security. They wouldn't have been in the room if their, their mindset hadn't been, how do I get better tomorrow than I am today? And when you look at those two stories, you compare them side by side, it makes the point for you. You know, one went out of business, the other produced millionaires. And the only difference between the two was that one wanted to get better and the other didn't. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a really powerful and stark illustration. And um, yeah, unfortunately, there's so much wrapped up into, into psychology um, in terms of how you approach these issues. Um, I, yeah, you write specifically how you think determines what you achieve, which I think is a, a really good uh, wrap up to that to that scenario. So I did I shared with you before this interview a post from uh, you know a friend of ours, Anthony Johnson, who's been on the show um, many times, multiple CISO now works uh, as managing uh, partner at Delve Risk, and so he was posting about you know, the trend for a breach, and this is on LinkedIn, he says, you know, one, a company apologizes, announces a hack, two, the stock drops, company hires high profile cyber advisors, stock recovers, I think we know who he's talking about. Um, and usually the cyber advisor is always uh, Alex Stamos for some reason. Yeah. Um, and then he says, um, you know, I've never heard of a company hiring a COO advisor or a CFO advisor, you know, and he's pointing out this 
paradox that security has these broad implications and yet you hire these advisors, will you give them the same support that you probably did not your CISO? I just wanted to get your thoughts on that from the security side. Like, have you been at the table where, you know, you're trying to get the CISO to champion something and it's just not sticking with the rest of the company or I've just, just some raw reactions to that idea. Yeah, I have a lot of reactions to this particular post. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, I don't, I'm just deciding which channel to go down right now, but in, to directly answer your question, um, what you've just described is, I think, the problem with many companies today, which is that they don't understand security, they don't understand the business context. For those reasons, the hierarchy within a company is usually set up wrong. So for example, hmm. even if a company has a CISO, which I don't know what the exact number is, but that stat is easy to find, but it's, a, it's, it's not a majority of companies. It's like less than a third of companies or some, some wild stat uh, don't have a CISO. Of the companies that do have a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, of those companies, I don't know what the stat is here, but it's also a really small percentage of them have the CISO report to the CEO. In most companies, they yeah. have whoever's in charge of security report to the CIO or the CTO, and then the CTO reports to the CEO. Now, the problem with that is that no, no matter how well-intentioned that intermediary is, the CTO or the CIO, they're going to filter the recommendations. They're going to they're gonna filter them. And what winds up happening in that context is we need to think about this idea of conflict. And my business partner mm -hmm. talks about this idea a lot of healthy conflict. And I, I like that as an idea because there is such thing as healthy conflict. So unhealthy conflict is when there's a conflict within a person, meaning uh, so that as an example, that CTO who says, all right, well, I have uh, perf uh, performance priorities. I have business priorities and I have security priorities. Priority is actually a singular word. It's actually singular. Priorities is not a real thing. Priority literally, <laughs> literally means the one thing. Which of those three is it going to be? That's unhealthy conflict because that CTO or CIO or whoever has to make a decision. And I can tell you from experience that security is usually not the priority. They might say, right. it's, it's one of our priorities. And they're like, here, look, it's bullet point number, number 14. It's one of our priorities. It's like, right. well, what's bullet points number one through 10? Um, now, healthy conflict, though, is if that conflict, instead of being within a person, right, the CTO says, well, I've got this or I've got this. How do I decide? Mm -hmm. It's healthy conflict if it's between people. So if the CTO and the CISO both get up in front of the CEO and make their case, now the business can make a decision. The business still might say security is not going to win out, but at least it's not being filtered before the decision is being made. At least the case is accurately being made. And I'm not in any way meaning to suggest that CTOs or CIOs or whatever are intentionally trying to sideline security. But I'm just pointing out the natural reality of the way right. that most companies are set up. And that's, that's just the way that's going to happen. Now, the, the, the question in the post maybe had a slightly different angle to it, which was why do security people need advisors and maybe a COO doesn't? Maybe that's a different topic. But to answer your question directly, uh, that that is a very persistent problem, and it's something that those of us in the security community have been dogging about for a long, 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 long time, and it's changing, but at a snail's pace. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up. It's almost exactly what Anthony said in his episode is that it's kind of a two-way street that CISOs need to be able to articulate, you know, revenue impact. Like, they need to be able to speak business back up the chain, um, but yes, in terms of who's reporting to whom is, is still being sussed out. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, in the, in the final moments here, I want to circle back to this idea that security can drive sales killer last chapter way to end strong. Um, uh, so in the short time that we have, we've talked about its competitive advantage. I think you touched on this at the beginning, which is some companies just don't know how to articulate that as a competitive advantage. So I just want to give you some time here to talk about that last bit, which is like you've invested in the development practice, you have uh, taken on the mindset. And so like, how can you take that? And I ask also from the consumer side, because, you know, the cynical part of me thinks that, you know, customers sign up for apps and then there's a breach happens and they're sort of like meh because it's like white noise at this mm -hmm. point. But at the same time, Ashley and I talked to 
Taz Khan, who's a, a, a advocate, and she is seeing a tremendous amount of interest from the popular consumer, you know, that they are more interested in these questions of what is being done with my data, how is it being kept private? So there's kind of this push and pull between like consumer behavior versus consumer want. So yeah, how do how do we articulate, you know, security is is a sales driver? Yeah, the I'm also skeptical. Uh, so <laughs> I, when I was uh, outlining the book and trying to decide how can I best help solve problems for my intended audience, um, I knew that you know, as much as I believe in security is a valuable thing on its own, it's the right thing to do. It's like it's like being nice to somebody. You you shouldn't have to get compensated for being nice right. to someone. <laughs> But I'm also a capitalist and a pragmatist, and I realized that the way of the world, you know, we need to understand business impact in order to make a successful case. And I, as I looked at all of my customers, a common trait amongst all of them was that they wanted to do two things. First, they wanted to secure their solution. That was the priority. Then they wanted to be able to take that and use it in order to generate sales themselves. Or in some cases, they wanted to use it to uh, get venture funding. And... So I couldn't hide from that fact. <laughs> I needed to say, okay, well, this is what people need. So let me let me go give it to them. And I put, you know, you saw it, you read the book, but this enormous disclaimer, like a full page disclaimer before this chapter that was like, only if you do everything else in this book, can you read this chapter? This chapter about sales does not apply if you skip the security stuff. Don't skip to the end. Don't skip to the end. I'm, now that I'm saying it, everyone's like, okay, skip to the end. Got it. Ted said, think differently. <laughs> Don't do what I'm supposed to. Okay, got it. Ted is hiding in plain sight a message to me. Uh, <laughs> so how do you do it, right? So how do, we, how do we actually take security and turn it into sales? And the, there's some practical ways to do it, which I can touch on. But the simplest way to think about this, let's not overcomplicate it, right? Let's just, just tell people what you're doing. And this is such simple, straightforward advice that almost nobody follows. I challenge everyone listening to this episode to find me and, and actually DM it to me or email it to me. I would love to see it. Find me a security page that is in spoken in human language, in like English, <laughs> what they're doing, why that matters to you as a potential consumer of that information, and not just a bunch of hand wavy buzzwords. Like we do external penetration testing and we use military grade encryption and we have bank level security and we're highly secure. And like all this stuff that doesn't actually tell you what they're doing. And that is the big thing. So for anyone listening to this saying, okay, I've invested in security. I have a secure solution. Now I need to prove it to people. Now's where you got to just tell them what you did. And some of the ways I talk about doing that are you should have a security specific page. It should tell exactly what you're doing, where to download your uh, security assessment reports, who you're working with, uh, connecting your customer or prospective customer with your security partner so they can talk to them. Um, having them involved in sales conversations, if appropriate, doing things like uh, um, uh, back to the website to make it actually a prominent feature on your website. Most people put it in like barely legible tone tiny. on tone. Yeah, it's yeah, super small. Right. Size eight font. <laughs> it's like privacy policy, you know? And it's like, no, I mean, <laughs> put it in the front. That's like about us, products, security. You put that in there, your customer's gonna be like, hell yeah, I want to work with these people because they because you're going to be saying to them, this matters to us and here's what we're doing. And then, then of course, you actually need to tell them what you did. It's not just right. a matter of uh, right. where the button is. Um, and then there's ways you can apply talking about what you're doing in your security questionnaires. So anyone who's listening, who's trying to sell to an enterprise, you've certainly got the questionnaire that's like dozens or even hundreds of questions long. And you're like, oh, shoot me, I don't want to do this. Those are opportunities right? Because the recipient mm -hmm. of that information, do you know why they're asking? Because they want to know. Like, so, so tell them, but shape your answers around, around your value proposition, essentially. Not make it marketing speak. They don't want that fluff, but meaning when they're asking a question, make sure you understand why they're asking that question and answer honestly, including if it's, we don't do that. We, we don't have that feature you're asking for. What they're, the first thing that they're often looking for with these things is sort of a sniff test of, do these people sound like they even know what they're talking about in terms of security? And if it sounds like you're doing a lot of hand-waving, using a lot of jargon, a lot of buzzwords, that makes their red flags go up. And they say, okay, well, we probably got to dig a little deeper. 
But if you're like, look, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're not doing. Here's why it works. Here's, here's how I think it applies to you. Then the recipient of information is going to say, okay, I'm working with a human being who I can reasonably trust. Hopefully that's ultimately what you're trying to do. And when you do those things, you remove security as this barrier to mm-hmm. uh, sales. And in fact, you turn it to the opposite and you say, well, look, here's our security is part of who we are. And the other three that you're receiving proposals or bids from, how are they talking about security? Because I guarantee you those other three are doing hand waving and using a lot of jargon, a lot of buzzwords. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent advice. So um, that that is it for the time that we have. But Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for writing the book. Um, I would encourage everyone to buy a copy. It's super readable, super accessible. It's dog-eared like hell on my desk right now. So I'm going to go back to it. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you know, if anyone wants to contact me directly, whether to talk about security challenges you have, or you want to learn more about the book, you want to follow me on LinkedIn, like anything that came out of this that said, I need to take action, just go to hackablebook.com and all my contact info is there. You can learn more about the book and yeah, however I can help you, I want to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And uh, I hope when all this is said and done, we'll be able to run into you in, in real life. I hope for that too. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for All right. Thanks so much. Thank you once again to Ted Harrington for joining us to talk about his book, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. Um, nope, messed it up. All right, we're going to do take two. Thank you once again to our guest, Ted Harrington, author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. This podcast is a production of Safeguard Cyber, and your hosts are myself, George Comedy, and Ashley Stone. Sound design by Kai Crow Getty, and once again, thanks to Matias Cepoletti for our theme music. Until next time, this is Safeguard Cyber with the Zero Hour, signing off. Stay safe, stay strong.